The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. Jesus entered the synagogue. There was a man there who had a withered hand. They watched Jesus closely to see if he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, come up here before us. Then he said to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath rather than to do evil, to save life rather than to destroy it? But they remained silent. Looking around at them with anger and grieved at their hardness of heart, Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately took counsel with the Herodians against him to put him to death. The Gospel of the Lord. When I was a little boy, I had that um, children's Bible. I'm, I swear, I bet you many of you have seen this one I'm talking about. It's kind of like a brownish cover, and it's got, I think it's got like purple writing with like edged in red or something like that. And it's a children's like picture kind of Bible thing. And, and I, it was just the kind of the one that seemed like everybody had when, when we were younger. And I remember that, of course, as a boy, my favorite story was the story of David and Goliath, like probably every single boy on earth who also choose, like, chooses St. Michael as his confirmation saint, you know, and things like that, you know, because he has a sword and, you know, he's a warrior and everything like that. And so, but the amazing thing about that story that you hear is that you know, David's not armed with really anything. Like, his weapon doesn't matter. Does he use a weapon? Yes, of course he uses a weapon that's like a more humble weapon that that a shepherd might might use in his own own daily work and things like that to scare off wolves or other, other types of prey. But in the end, it's just like he's armed with God. That's the difference between him and Goliath, is it's not about the weapons or the armor or anything like that. It's, it's that he relies on God. So his shield is God himself. And that's the, big, that's the big thing there that we realize is that it's so important to go out into the world and not be protected by the things that we have, by some sort of illusion of something that's going to protect us, um, but God himself, actually reliance and trust on him. And then one of the things that's kind of amazing about shifting into the gospel today, is that, have, has anybody ever been in this situation before? I certainly know that I have, where you saw somebody in your company do the right thing, and then you immediately felt guilty for not being the first one to do the right thing? <laughs> like, where you're like, oh, dang it. 
You know, like I should have done that before they did that. Like they, they saw something that was out of order, somebody who was in need, something that should have happened, and they were the first one to act. And then like a, a nice little combination of like guilt and like good shame. You're like, I'm ashamed of myself for not being the first one to do things, but I'm also a little bit prideful that I wasn't the first one to do things, right? It's this battle of our Christian life all of the time that we fight with these kinds of things. But that's kind of the situation that happens in the gospel today. It's one where those men specifically should have understood what the right thing to do was. One of the things that St. Thomas talks about much in his writing, especially in the Summa Theologia, is, is the idea of natural law. That naturally, like ideally, when somebody would be born, they would be born, you know, you, you hear that said by um, many parents, right? When, when your child is born, 10 fingers and 10 toes, right? That, that idea that like, there is something in our nature where we should be fully formed, if that's the case. But sometimes, by some depravity, what we would call a natural evil, not a moral evil, but a natural evil would be somebody is actually missing the faculty that they should have, like that their hand is not doing what is in accord with its nature. So one of the things that God always does, and I mentioned this the other day, is St. Thomas talks about, you know, grace perfects nature. So he always puts things back in right order. He restores something to what it should be in, in the first place. And so that's what he does to, to the man with the withered hand in that particular case. And one of the things that's so interesting is that a lot of people have not understood where morality comes from, like what the right thing to do is. So Jesus is just like, the right thing right now is to restore somebody to their original dignity in which I want to give them. That would always be the right thing to do. Not like the liturgical setting of the day or something, right? It's just like, that. again, that's why we do it. We worship to understand what the right charity is and what the right thing to do is. But where does morality come from? This is something that the world is very confused by. If it doesn't flow from God and flow from charity, flow from doing the right thing for God, ourselves, and our neighbor. Remember, when we sin, we're sinning against either God, ourselves, or our neighbor. And so morality, the right thing to do, flows from God. And if you go out there and you say that there is no God, um, then you become a relativist. You come up with your own moral code. So it's just like, what is it that tells everybody that murder is wrong? Right now, everybody still thinks that that's true, except for in the womb, right? Then something puts this layer over it and says, oh, well, it's okay in this circumstance, right? Their morality goes askew because they don't understand the point of it anymore. The source of their morality is not God, it's themselves. They become their own decider of their own moral code. And that's one of the things that has really shifted in the world and it's really, really different than it used to be. I remember my cousin sent me a photo in like 1952 of New York during Holy Week. And in 1952 in New York during Holy Week, you know, the tallest buildings in New York in the windows had crosses lit up in the windows. 
Now, during the month of June, it's all rainbow colors and stuff like that. It shows that the world has started to shift and go with the way that the culture of the world wants to go, not the unchanging truth of God. One of the things that we always remember is like objective truth means that it's unchangeable, which is the very nature of God. That's what his immutability is. It, he does not change. Uh, people change and evolve at times. You know, the world can change and evolve at times, but sometimes it can kind of devolve. And, and that's the problem. We want to be grounded on something that's rock. That's what we heard in like the responsorial psalm. Rock is St. Peter. Rock is, is solid. So we have a solid foundation in objective truth. But if we keep, you know, and, and here, here's the principle, you know, I'm, my mind is all over the place, but um, relativism is this, right? A relativist wants to say your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. Perhaps you've heard your children say something like that. The reason that that's wrong is it's self-refuting from its founding principle. And this is why I'm, what I mean by that. So you say, so do you believe that there is no such thing as an objective truth, a truth that is always true? And then the relativist responds, no. I believe that your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. I was just like, you just answered your argument with an objective truth. No is an absolute statement. Just like yes is an absolute statement and stuff. And so it, it's an argument that is built on absolute sand. It has no real value. But yet, that is the way that most of the world is functioning right now. And the greatest thing that everybody's worried about is offending somebody else. That has become their bigger truth. Is It's like, well, I don't want to offend anybody. And it's just like, no, we want to stand for the truth. That's who David was. He was a representation of God standing against a pagan world and overcoming it by a belief in God, by a belief in truth itself. And, and that's what we stand for. So some of the battles that we face, um, we're going to face the very same thing that David faced. Insults being yelled at you, insults, insults being yelled at you because of the God that you believe in. So it was no different in David's time than it is in our time. And it's different in some ways, of course, historically different. But, um, but, but the insults are no different. Still insulting you for what you believe and who you believe in. But we have to stand on firm foundations and begin to be able to explain that to the youth in a nice way, in a charitable way, in a way that they can understand and receive. But they should be refuted if they're off on the wrong track. And it's just like, ask them, why do you believe that? Do they have a reason? And is it a good reason? And, and when you hear the reason, try to figure out what might be wrong with that and explain it to them. Because the wheels will turn. The wheels will turn. You'll say something that's true, and it's very hard to walk away without thinking about it. Oh, my mother said that thing, and it bothers me. And it bothers me because I think she might be right, <laughs> right? So we need to say things that might bother people to make them realize and ponder what truth actually is and what falsity actually is. That, that, that's how we defend our faith. 
That's how we get people to understand that there is an objective truth and it's only found in our Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you all.